10% of the plastic is recycled. Probably another 20% is burned and the rest is landfilled. So probably about 70% is landfilled. In chemical engineering, we understand that you can use solvents to selectively solubilize things. The whole basic principle of the strap technology is to find a solvent that can selectively dissolve one polymer over the other. So selectively dissolve the polyethylene. You dissolve that in a solvent, then you precipitate it out, then you have pure polyethylene, and then you can use that to make new products. Then you have a fairly pure, uncolored, white plastic that you can use for different applications, very similar applications we think that you could use for the virgin plastic as well. The secret of the technology is making sure you recover as much as that solvent as possible. So you want to be able to recover 99.99% of that solvent and make sure none of it gets out into the environment. So if you can process 3,000 tons of plastics a year, we think you can be cost competitive with making virgin plastics as you go larger, 10,000, 15,000 tons a year. Everybody is excited about plastic recycling. At some point, people need to commit the resources to actually do that and actually build some of these plants. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. We chatted with George Huber, the executive director of Chemical Upcycling and Waste Plastics about his research and work on recycling plastics. He has been working in this area for about 16 plus years to find a solution to recycle plastic in a way that is scalable, economically viable and retains the properties of virgin plastic. Listen to his goals and aspirations. Dr. George Huber, Executive Director of the Center for Chemical Upcycling of Waste Plastics, Disruptive Technologies for the Plastic Industry. Dr. Huber is also the Richard Antoine Chair in the Chemical and Biological Engineering Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He joins us from Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, George. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Vidya. It's a pleasure to be here. I found out that mine and several other municipalities and their recycling facilities do not pick up or process plastics other than plastic bottles or milk jugs. I was under the wrong impression that it was okay to put with our mixed stream recycling heavier plastic bags, the clamshells, and almost everything except for the grocery bags. Then we have the multi-layer plastics, which are so complex to recycle. There are probably hundreds of chemicals and materials used to make these different types of plastics, right? So what are the main ingredients that go in, say, to make a plastic milk jug? There's a lot of misconceptions about plastic recycling. Some of these are promoted by the waste management companies. It's also a very complicated topic because plastics have such a complicated composition. There's seven main types of plastics, but in reality, there's hundreds of different types of plastics. Even the way you process a PET plastic, that's your number one plastic because a PET plastic, if you 
thermoform it versus you blow mold it versus you extrude it, your properties of that plastic are going to be different, which makes it more complicated to recycle. So the fact is plastics are very complicated structures. There's a wide range of chemical compositions. And even the people who process the plastics, they'll add different additives to the plastics. Like there's the thermoform PET plastics where they'll add carbon black that makes it black and that makes it more complicated to recycle. Like you said, the different plastics in terms of the heavier plastic versus, say, a cling wrap. Is it easier or would it use less amount of material to make a cling wrap as against a milk jug? The plastic industry can be thought of as flexible plastics, which are go to make your bags mm-hmm. and they're flexible materials. And then there's rigid plastics that goes to make your soda bottles, your milk jugs, your clamshells material. And then there's also fibers as well that go to make clothing as well. So all of those are different types of plastics. In the United States and in most places of the world, the only types of plastics we really recycle are rigid number one and some number two plastics. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., the recycling rate for number one plastics is the highest of any plastics. That's 20%. The second highest plastic, and that's really rigid HDPE plastics, preferably in the bottle form. The thermal forms are harder to recycle. All of those are rigid number one plastics. The number two plastics, which is milk jugs, number HDPE, that has about 10% in the U.S. Overall, it's about 10% of plastics that are recycled. Your films, the recycling facilities in the U.S., they're called material recovery facilities or MRFs, can't handle flexible packages. They clog up the machinery, so they'll pull those off and throw those away. Those will go to landfill. Actually, in my town, our recycling agency claims they can handle films and they claim they can handle plastic bags. And so we called them up a few weeks ago and we said, I don't think you can do this. You know, I was touring their MRF and they told us they couldn't do this. And they said, yes, there's right. So that was, this is just all misinformation that people didn't understand about plastic recycling. Wow. And that's the same impression that I had in my city too. I was under the impression like some of these plastics were okay to be put and the MRFs could sort it. And the MRFs are basically an outcome of our single stream recycling, right? Well, the MRFs are the first step in the plastic recycling value chain. In the U.S. and most developing countries, we have MRFs. In developing countries, we have waste pickers who kind of go through and sort the plastic, and there's a whole bunch of people that do that. And then the MRFs, they'll separate out the cardboard, they'll bundle that up, sell that, they'll separate out the glass, they'll bundle that up, they'll sell that, they'll separate out the colored number one plastics, the uncolored number one plastics, bell that, they'll separate out the number two plastics. Mm -hmm. They could do the number three through seven rigid plastics if there was a market for them right now there's no downstream market. Then they'll sell them to a secondary processor who will take them, chop them up, clean them up, turn them into pellets or fiber or other different materials as well. So it's a very kind of complicated value chain. The MRFs, sometimes they're owned by waste management companies who also own the landfill as well. And there's economic incentives to do the landfill. Sometimes they're owned by the municipality as well. Mm -hmm. They're just the first step in the recycling value chain. And they're just sorters of plastics. So let's get down to a molecular level. What are monomers? And polymers, I think we have heard about it a little bit, like at least you've heard of polymer chemistry. I had never heard of monomers. What are monomers? Monomers are the building block of the polymers. Usually people don't like when I talk too much about organic chemistry, but a polymer means many types of monomers. So the monomers are the building blocks of the polymer. 
So polyethylene, that's your most common plastics. That's your number four and number two plastics. HDPE is a type of polyethylene. LDP is another type of polyethylene. The building block there is ethylene. Do these monomers determine how the polymers, how they turn out, or do they vary? There's a handful of four to six different monomers that make different types of plastics that are the building blocks of plastics. So there's ethylene, propylene, those are your two major olefins that are made. There's benzene that's used to make polystyrene. You combine the ethylene, the benzene together. Then there's paraxylene that's converted to terephthalic acid. You take your terephthalic acid, monoethylene glycol, that makes PET. And so the key core monomers there are the paraxylene and then the ethylene that then get converted to other monomers that then get reacted to make your number one or your PET plastic. So polymers were accidentally created around 1890s and they weren't really popular till the Second World War when they had to be used to insulate cables and even used in the Manhattan Project. There's natural polymers like cellulose, that's your natural polymer, and that's been used for a very long time. And there's all sorts of natural polymers that are already used. Synthetic polymers, and these are polymers that are made from oil, really started in the early 1900s that was really the growth of the polymer industry. That was really the growth of the polymer industry. Bakelite was one of the first polymers. LDPE was another big polymer. Before that, you used to have these people called horners, okay? And they would take bones and they would like craft the bones and the other parts of the animals and make combs, okay? And it was used to be very expensive to purchase a comb because you had to make it from a bone. The other is the billard balls that are used in pool. Those were made from elephant tusks, okay? So before you had synthetic polymers, you were using different parts of the animals to make these. And these were very expensive items to make. When Once synthetic polymers came down, the price of combs came to be 25 to 50 cents. And uh, you didn't need to take a bone and have this whole profession of horners kind of went out of business. You can make polymers out of petroleum, but you can also make it out of grain. So are those the ones that you're talking about made from cellulose? Are they the ones made with grain? You can. Cellulose is more a, a structure that's found in wood, agricultural residues. Grain is another type of polysaccharide as well that not quite as crystalline, but it's also a polymer as well. There's many different monomers. You can make different materials through it. It's hard to process it. It's hard to get the properties that you want. Those are natural polymers. There's other types of polymers that are on the market that are made from plant biomass. One is called polylactic acid or PLA. That's made from corn grade. That's a compostable polymer. It's hard to make bags from it, but you can make more rigid materials like a fork, other things like that. And it's growing in market size, but most of the synthetic polymers that we use today are made from oil or natural gas. If we had historically gone towards the route of making polymers through grain, would it have been less harmful or would it have had less impact on our planet? The natural synthetic polymers are all biodegradable. The synthetic ones are not biodegradable. As simple as that. There is a whole area of research that is trying to make, and I'm working in this area as well, that's trying to make synthetic polymers that are biodegradable. There is a small market of 
polymers that have similar properties to something like polyethylene but are biodegradable, the problem is the cost. They're going to be more expensive. And then the problem is getting the same properties that you have with polyethylene, these synthetic polymers, and those polymers are established. That's a large research area that we're actively research on is try and make new types of polymers that can have the same properties as polyethylene, be low cost, and be biodegradable. So let's talk about the impact of plastic. There are a lot of good things that come with the use of plastic. You can preserve things longer. You can protect sterilized medical equipment. You can keep out moisture. But along with that, it comes with several negative impacts. Let's start with just the manufacturing. What and how does the manufacturing impact our environment? You know, the main impact is greenhouse gas emissions during the manufacturing of plastics. Every ton of plastics you manufacture, you're emitting about three tons of carbon dioxide. That's the major impact you have, as well as you're drilling the oil. So if there's any release of that oil, that can also harm the environment as well. But the main impact is you're doing it in a safe, controlled way are the CO2 emissions. How about the next impact on our health? Drinking out of a plastic cup, storing food in plastic containers or polystyrene, drinking a hot cup of coffee from a polystyrene cup. How do those things affect our health? Yeah, most plastics don't have any impact on human health and are very safe to be used for food applications. Before any polymer is used in the U.S., for food applications, it has to be approved by the FDA. There is concerns with different fluorinated polymers that they can cause some health effects. And, you know, there's some discussion about getting those banned. That's kind of some of the papers that have these wax on it. That's a little bit like the Teflon. And some of those can have some negative health impacts if those if they leach out from the plastics. If whatever additive you add to the plastic leaches out and gets into your food, that could cause concern. And it could leach out even when it's in a stable state, not heated. That's right. You know, the leaching could happen over slow time. So, you know, the people who work with food processing plastics, I'm not one of them, but they have to be very aware of this and they have to be very concerned about it. Make sure that's not going to happen. The FDA has to give them that approval in the U.S. And the partners on our planet are the animal life, the wildlife who live on this planet with us. How does it affect them? The bad thing about plastics is they can easily leak into the environment. Mm -hmm. Even in the U.S., which has a very modern waste management system, it's been estimated that one to two million tons of plastic leak into the environment. And every part of plastic that leaks into the environment will end up in the ocean. And so most ocean wildlife end up ingesting these plastic and have large amounts of plastic inside them. You know, we don't know what that's going to do to the ecology in the ocean. There's been studies that actually have seen that there's gas phase microparticles in the air of plastic that people are breathing and it, it will accumulate and stay in the environment for thousands of years. You know, there's degradation mechanisms. It'll fall apart, kind of go small. And even in your clothing, when you wash your clothing, and I guess in some of the fibers, it can fall apart and form microplastic that can get into the environment. In less developed countries where you don't have modern waste management facilities, then you're going to have even larger volumes of waste plastic that's going to end up in the ocean. So you've been a global traveler, you know, presenting your research, talking to different governments and collaborating maybe with other researchers too. So talk about your experience and what you saw when you traveled to 
say, Germany or, say, Mexico or India? My first experience traveling internationally was when I was 19 years old. I did a mission for my church, and I lived in Guatemala. And I just remember driving to the countryside, and it's just getting dirtier and dirtier. It's a beautiful country, Guatemala, but there was plastic bags spread out everywhere. We would burn our own trash because there was no trash collection service. So it was kind of crazy that plastic just everywhere, and there was no infrastructure to manage the waste and think about what to do with that. Mm -hmm. My family and I we lived in China one summer. And I remember when we lived in China, they told us, oh, you don't need to recycle anything. You can just put it all in one thing because there's people who come through and will pick up anything that's recyclable from your trash. You know, those are the waste pickers. And I think that's what a lot of developing countries in Latin America, I know in Brazil, Mexico, a lot of parts of the world, they have these waste pickers who go through the trash, they'll collect whatever they can, and they'll they'll bell them up and then they'll recycle them. Um, and that's a lot different than the developed countries where you have MRFs, probably the most modern country I've been to in terms of plastic recycling is Japan. There you have about seven or eight different bins, all the different types of plastics. It's very complicated to separate your plastics and separate your recyclables in Japan. It was the most modern system I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Europe also has a very modern system. In the U.S., we recycle about 10% of our plastics. In Europe, it's 30%. Um, they have a lot better infrastructure, a lot better demand for plastic recycling. So you had the chemical upcycling of plastic waste center. How do you get funded for the center? This is a center that's primarily funded through the U.S. Department of Energy. So it's a competitive center. It involves two other universities in the U.S., one in Canada, several in Mexico. They wanted this to be a North American center. So, you know, the challenges for plastic recycling in Mexico and in the U.S. are a little bit different because of the way they manage the waste. We have about 16 different companies in all parts of the value chain that are involved with the center, providing us very important recycling advice and making sure we're doing the research that we need to. We have several graduate students who support you know, who are actually doing the work are the graduate students that and, and postdoc scholars that we have in our center. So could we say the premise of your research is that matter really cannot be created or destroyed? It can be just converted. So some of your or the center's focus is solvent targeted recovery and precipitation, strap processing technique that can be used for, say, different types of plastics. Yeah, that's right. One of the core technologies of our center is a technology, the acronym is STRAP, Solvent Targeted Recovery and Precipitation. So the challenge with a lot of plastics is that they're mixtures of different types that can't be recycled together. So you can imagine polyethylene, polypropylene, PET, maybe EVOH. Mm -hmm. In chemical engineering, we understand that you can use solvents to selectively solubilize things. The whole basic principle of the strap technology is to find a solvent that can selectively dissolve one polymer over the other. So selectively dissolve the polyethylene. You dissolve that in a solvent, then you precipitate it out, then you have pure polyethylene, and then you can use that to make new products. So when you get polyethylene through this process, is it as pure as the virgin one you would get? Yes, it's chemically identical to the virgin polymer. It has very similar properties to the virgin polyethylene. The companies we're working with, they're very excited about this technology. They say, yeah, just give us ton quantities of this and then we'll test it in our products. How expensive is it? Is it cost effective than like 
going out and just buying new plastic? Yeah, it depends on the scale you operate the technology at. With all chemical processes, the larger the scale, the more economical it becomes. So if you can process 3,000 tons of plastics a year, we think you can be cost competitive with making virgin plastics as you go larger, 10,000, 15,000 tons a year. Mm-hmm. You can make it cheaper than the virgin plastics. We do the basic experiments in the lab. So we have a team of graduate students doing the experiments in the lab and sticking in plastic plastics and different solvents. Then we have a team of people doing what's called a process model and they estimate how much this would cost in a larger process and then they do an economic analysis and also environmental impact because the environmental impact becomes super important and look at the economics. It's very economical. So we're super excited about it. You talked about the environmental impact. So this process where you're putting this chemical which breaks down the plastic Does it have any off gases? Does it have any vaporization, liquid discharge, anything that would and could need to be treated? When you're dealing with, it doesn't break down the chemicals, it dissolves it. Okay, so it it kind of just dissolves one plastic over the other. There's no chemical reaction that's really happening besides the dissolving it and then you re-precipitate it out. The secret of the technology is making sure you recover as much as that solvent as possible. So you want to be able to recover 99.99% of that solvent and make sure none of it gets out into the environment. If some of it does, you have to dispose of it and you'll have to, you know, remove it. And it's super important that we track all of that. At least in our models, we assume that we can do that. We're trying to build a larger machine and demonstrate the technology at a larger scale and demonstrate that approach. Um, so far with our models, everything looks very promising. The other environmental impact is the greenhouse gas emissions. The greenhouse gas emissions are 10 to 25% the greenhouse gas emissions of making the virgin plastic. So it has a lot lower greenhouse gas emissions compared to making the virgin plastic. I'm just trying to understand. So you have this multi-layer plastic, right, which is, say, a bag of chips. So you found a solvent which will dissolve all the layers regardless, because each layer is made of a different kind of plastic. Yeah. So the multi-layer plastics become super complicated. You know, a lot of the plastics that you find in the food packaging industry, also with medicine, are multi-layer package. And they'll put several layers together to get the properties they want. So they'll add an EVOH layer. That's what's called a barrier layer. So that prevents water and oxygen, helps your food last longer. They'll provide the PET that gives you some rigidity. They'll provide the polyethylene as kind of like a binder, and then you can put the inks on it. Mm -hmm. So each layer has a unique property. We work with some companies. They have 500 different layers in some of these materials. So super, super complex. Um, Usually there's four to seven different types of plastic. What we do is we know what solvent will selectively dissolve one polymer and leave everything else behind. So let's imagine we have polyethylene, PET, EVOH, so three polymers. So the challenge is finding a solvent which will selectively dissolve the polyethylene, leave the other stuff behind, then we can precipitate out the polyethylene. Then we need to find another solvent that will selectively dissolve the EVOH, leave the PET behind. And we also can deal with the inks too. So we can dissolve the polymers away from the inks and we know how to handle the inks or the foils as well. Foils and papers as well. You can find the solvent that will selectively dissolve this, precipitate out. Then you have a fairly pure, uncolored white plastic that you can use for different applications, very similar applications we think that you could use for the virgin plastic as well. Extremely clever. 
I'm fascinated at how you're saying this. Yes, that's a really such a clever solution to break down the plastic. Thank you. It was really, not to go too much into detail, but it's understanding the thermodynamics of polymer solvent solubility. And we do all these computer simulations using molecular modeling techniques that allow us to pick what solvent we want to use. And so we have this huge database of all these simulations and we go in the lab and measure them, but they can provide the guidance about what solvents to use, what solvents to go away from. So we do a lot of molecular modeling, we do process modeling, and then we do experiments. And then you also have to make the plastic and get it validated by the people to say, yes, this plastic has the appropriate properties that I can use to remake a bottle or remake in flexible field packaging. So is TRAP the only technology that you are working on or are there other technologies? There's other technologies we're working on. I co-founded a company named Anellotech, A-N-E-L-L-O-T-E-C-H, and they have a technology that's called Plastic TCAT, and that takes plastic mixtures and it uses special type of reactor called a fluidized bed reactor and a zeolite catalyst are used all the time in the oil industry. Mm-hmm. And then it takes the plastics and it breaks them down into the monomers unit. So it makes the aromatics and it olefins. And then you could feed that back to a new polymer production plant and remake your polymer. That's being funded right now by a consortium of 22 different Japanese countries. And, and we're looking at this technology as well in our center with CUP, the pyrolysis. A lot of companies have made announcements. There's probably half dozen, six to 10 different companies who are doing semi-commercial plants to pyrolyze the plastics, heat them up in the ad of oxygen, make an oil, and then try and make convert that oil back to the monomer units that you can reuse to remake the polymer. How different is it from depolymerization? Or is this depolymerization? It is a thermal depolymerization step. So when you start heating your plastic, if you put it in a fire, you'll see it start melting. Okay, so you want it to melt. You want to capture the vapor. You don't want it to burn. So you want it to melt and you're kind of controlling that temperature and you're doing it in a very large industrial reactor. The reactor configuration is super important. A lot of people, they use these stirred tank reactors that can't scale because going back to chemical engineering, it's due to the heat transfer. You got to get the right type of reactor and you know there, you, we need to pick the technology that you can scale up to 10 kiloton, 100 kiloton per year and it's going to be economical. And there is also pyrolysis What is that? Pyrolysis is the thermal decomposition of a solid into a liquid. So if you burn a candle, so if you have a candle and and you have a flame on top, the first step is the pyrolysis of that solid wax, and then the wax will migrate to the flame, and then it will burn. So usually when we talk about pyrolysis as a technology, you're heating up the plastic without oxygen so you don't burn it. So you heat it up, you heat it up to 500 degrees Celsius, and then you collect the vapors and that becomes an oil. Mm -hmm. That oil is similar to crude oil. You can process it and convert it in similar technology that you use to take crude oil and make plastics from. So we have three different ways, or rather two different ways. And there's other approaches that are being applied for plastic recycling, and it depends on the type of plastic. So for PET, number one plastics, you can chemically recycling them to the monomer. And we're not working on that center, but there's a lot of work going on in that area. A lot of companies have made announcements about that. The thermal decomposition, pyrolysis, you can with and without a catalyst. Mm-hmm. Then there's the strap solvent-based approach. Those are the two main approaches we're working on in our center for chemical upcycling of waste plastics. So what you're saying is that depending on 
the polymer, depending on the plastic, you can pick and choose the most efficient process. That's correct. Plastics are very different in their composition. There's not one, it's not like glass. Glass is all similar silica. It has one simple composition. You have three different types of polyethylene, and there's probably 20 or 30 different grades of polyethylene. You know, we have number two plastics, that's HDPE, number four plastics, that's LDPE, and then there's linear low density polyethylene, and there's ultra low density polyethylene. So there's a whole bunch of different types of just polyethylene alone, polypropylene as well. And then that you can change the structure as well. So they're very, very complicated structure. And that allows people to get lots of different versatility from the plastics. You know, you can use them to make a soft material, a cup, a, you know, flexible films. You can use it to make cushions. You know, cars are really glued together. Cars are made from plastic that is really glued together with different adhesives today. You can use it to make clothing because of the wide variety of chemistry you have with plastics, but it makes it more complicated to recycle. So you mentioned that some of your innovations have been applied in an industrial setting. How far along are they? Have they done the whole process or is it just on a beta scale? Yeah, in Anello Tech, we have a fully integrated working pilot plant. It's about 80 feet tall. It's in Silsby, Texas. The technology looks super promising. I'm super excited about it. It was first developed for taking wood and making the same monomers you can make from oil from wood. And we've been able to successfully pilot that. It's economical. I think they're waiting to take it and move it to the next scale, someone to build a commercial plant, but it's very promising. And now we're working on, instead of wood, into this process, feeding in plastics. And I think next year we'll start feeding in that in plastics. Mm-hmm. Other technologies, the strap, it's in my laboratory. We're working on scaling it up and building a larger reactor. And, and we're, we're designing that. And we need to worry about efficiency, scaling it up, making sure the machine works right on the larger scale that we, it does now. And that's a lot of physics, a lot of mechanical engineering, a lot of chemistry as well. So recently I read an article about the shortages in procuring the recyclable plastics. Where will these applications, where will these industries who will take your innovations, where will they get the recyclable plastic if it's all contaminated or the MRFs won't take the... The MRFs will have to upgrade their infrastructure to be able to collect that. In the developed countries, you'll be using MRFs. In the more developing countries, you'll be using waste pickers, you know, and they'll be able to collect the plastic bags. The reason why we don't collect plastic bags right now and flexible plastics is because they have no value and that technology isn't developed. You can use them. You can use the plastic bags to make things like asphalt which has a very low value, about $40 a ton. You'd really like to use it in applications that has $1,000 a ton. You can always make things like lumber and construction material from these recycled materials. That's what a lot of number two plastic is used to make lumber and recycled material. But the challenge is getting it to more and more higher value applications and use more of the plastics for that. So why don't we go along the way that Japan does, sorting it? in seven different bins or eight different bins? And is it just public adoption and education? I think in the U.S. we're probably too lazy to do what Japan does. I don't think we're as environmentally conscious as them. And so I think we'll, we rely on the MRFs to be able to recycle them. And the more complicated it is, the more manpower you need to be able to pull out all those contaminants and make different things. And I think also in the U.S., we have a lot more land 
than they do in Japan. So we can landfill more of the plastics and there's not that economic incentive to do that. You know, there was the Chinese Sword Act that happened a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And before that, a lot of these MRFs were separating, the, selling their recycled plastics to China. So they were shipping it to China and then they would pull it out and recycle it. It's been one of the most important legislations with plastic recycling was when China decided to accept that. And I think all countries need to really figure out what they're going to do with their waste and have technology in place to be able to recycle that and, and reuse that plastic. If your technology is applied, it's successful, it scales, how many tons of plastic do you think you can save from going into the landfills or being burnt? I hope we can get to 80-90% of plastics, being able to recycle 80-90% to of plastics. How much is recycled right now and what happens to the ones that are not recycled? In the U.S., 10% of the plastic is recycled. Probably another 20% is burned and the rest is landfilled. So probably about 70% is landfilled. In Europe, 30% is recycled. Probably 10% is landfilled and 60% is burned. Now, burning the plastic creates more CO2 emissions. So if you're concerned about that, that's a bad thing for CO2 emissions. So, you know, we need to get those numbers 70, 80, 90%. Do you have a patent on your technology? We have a pending patent application, yes. So these are research papers, right? You're publishing them in peer-reviewed journals. Yes. So most of your technology is disclosed there. Yeah, no, we're, everything we do is in the public domain. Our funding is through the U.S. Department of Energy. We have 16 companies that are involved with us, and we're providing all this information to them. And they're actually providing a lot of good feedback about how we need to improve the technology and take it to the next level, take it to the next scale. Everybody is excited about plastic recycling. At some point, people need to commit the resources to actually do that and actually build some of these plants. And these are expensive technologies, hundreds of millions of dollars to actually do them efficiently, and you have to develop the the infrastructure. So there's huge challenges as well. I understand that you would like to patent it, but would you allow people to use your patent for free? Like, say, I think Tesla did that. Well, I work for the university. Once I patent something, I don't own it. They own it. I'd be glad to work with other people who are interested in this technology, and we have lots of other collaborators as well. I think you do need intellectual property if you do want people to invest in the technologies, and they have to be assured as well that their investment is going to be protected as well. But we're publishing in the public domain. We go to conferences. We present our work, and we have lots of collaborators uh, in Mexico and in other parts of the world uh, that we're working with. The reason I asked is the problem is so big and fewer constraints we place, fewer barriers we have to making the solution as widespread as possible and get as many creative people together to solve this. That is the best for us and for the planet. I 100% agree. It's been, you know, with Cup, we have a lot of competing companies that are competitors in the marketplace and do that. And we're trying to bring them together to talk about challenges. So we have no IP agreements that they have to sign. So it makes it all easier for them. I thought if I have to make IP agreements for each company, there's no way any company would, you can't get 
three companies to agree on any one single IP agreement. So everything we're doing with our board is just providing them with public information and trying to get them the most technically accurate information. I think it's easy to have technically incorrect information and plastic recycling, and that would lead to a lot of wrong decisions in this field. When you talked about CUP, it's the chemical upcycling and plastic waste center that you lead, right? That, that's right. Yeah. Is that center involved in policymaking? Because so much of this, since you said you need hundreds of millions of dollars, you do need governmental support, like you see in um, Europe, right? The government is so involved in environmental policy. We evaluate policy, we look at that, and we have whole supply chain models that say under this scenario, you're going to get this outcome. Under this scenario, you're going to get this outcome. And we do make some recommendations about policy. It becomes super important right now. There's a lot of talk about extended packaging responsibility and making the people who produce the package responsible on the back end to figure out what happens once it's produced. Mm -hmm. So we do evaluate that. We do look at that. But the core focus of CUP really is about the technology part. With any developing technology, you know, you need to understand there's a technology aspect, there's an economic aspect, you know, how much is it going to cost? And then there's a political aspect and all three you have to evaluate and you have to understand for them to actually happen. Mm -hmm. We do have policymakers that are on our board. We have our local waste management company and our local waste management municipality is involved with us and they do provide us with recommendations and guidance. And it's interesting to see, you know, plastic recycling from their viewpoint and what they're dealing with. There are various ways to tackle the problem, right? One is like just reduce the use of virgin plastics with some of the solutions that you offer. Then find alternatives like the biomass plastics or completely steer away from single-use plastics. Yeah, I think, you know, you want to reduce, reuse and recycle as much as you can. But the practical solution is our society is not reducing plastics. Plastics are increasing because they're such a low-cost, versatile material. They have so many applications. With food packaging, you know, there's a lot of energy that goes to make food. We have a huge problem in the U.S. with food spoilage, food spoiling, and the issue is the storage of it. We don't store it well, so if you can put it in smaller quantities, store it better, your food will last longer. So from the food aspect angle and, and the greenhouse gas emissions emitted with food, plastics could actually benefit that. But we have to figure out how to recycle those plastic packaging material and the materials that, that are used there. Another aspect of what we're talking about is reduction in the use of petroleum in our cars and other applications. So do you think with this reduction, I'm not talking like today, tomorrow, but in the future, more plastics will be created because they have all this petroleum investments in refining and refineries. Do you think they will make more plastic or it will just decrease the plastic that we make? The reality is we're just making in the next 10 to 20 years, I think our plastic production is going to continue to increase worldwide. I think, uh, you know, we're doing more and more plastic packaging. You know, people are going more and more to convenience stores to buy kind of smaller items of food and stuff like that. And that's smaller packaging where you're using more packaging in your food application. And we're finding applications for plastics that are replacing more glass and aluminum and things like that. So I think we have to figure out a better way to recycle the plastics that we're using. And I think we also need to work 
more closely with people who are making these plastic packaging to make sure they're adding additives to the plastics that aren't going to stop us from being able to recycle it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things they'll add to a lot of these films is PVC. If you have a small amount of PVC in your PET or your number one plastics, that screws up all of your plastic recycling. And why are they adding that? That's not a good thing to add. Some people who make plastic bags, they'll add these uh, metal oxides that will help it degrade better. So if you're in Mexico, they have a big problem in Mexico City of the plastic bags clogging up the, the sewage pipes. So they ask the people who make these plastic bags to put something in there that's called a oxodegradation unit. And that oxodegrades the plastic. Then that creates huge amounts of microplastics that get into the ocean. So it's really a bad thing. So there's additives and there's things you should not be doing with plastics. And you got to understand to make a plastic that you can then recycle it. Now, these are all separate companies. So there's the plastic producer, there's the brand owner, there's the retail store, there's the consumer, there's the waste management company. There's no fully integrated system. And then there's the people who make the raw plastics. Mm -hmm. But who has the responsibility to do that? There's not one person who you can point to and do that. So you need to deal with legislation to figure out how to deal with that. Several of our listeners are entrepreneurs and a lot more of them are consumers. With our conversation, we put them in sort of a dilemma. What should the conscious person do? Like you just found out your Murph in your town doesn't take the plastic. What will we do in the meantime till your solution becomes full scale? That's a great question. I think you got to first understand the issues, you know, so I think your program does a great job at explaining these very complex issues and understanding the issues. And I think that's the first thing to make sure you understand exactly what's happening. Hopefully you can help legislators make correct decisions and then buy products that are going to be easier to be recycled. You know, a lot of the brand owners, you know, they like to make something that you're going to go into that store, you're going to spend a couple minutes grabbing some product that probably the flashiest product, and they'll spend a lot of money to make that product have special labeling or special packaging that will really make you want to buy it when you're in that convenience store. But then that makes it more complicated to recycle. And I think you want to try probably use as much rigid plastics as you can that are kind of pure. Um, glass is very easy to recycle. Cardboard is very easy to recycle. It's a very complicated question that you asked. If you had to pick two goals for your center, what would they be? And how long do you think it will take to achieve those goals? The first goal that we have is to demonstrate strap on a larger scale. So right now we're designing a system to be able to make kilogram quantities of recycled plastics and really test it out in a continuous scale. And then we'd like to start thinking about how we can commercialize the technology. We hope by next year we'll have built and demonstrated the continuous production of our strap technology. And once we have samples, we can start thinking about spinning it off and commercializing the technology. So that would be my number one goal. You know, the other goal is to provide accurate information, technical information to all these companies who are working on plastic recycling so they make the correct decision about these technologies. It's, it's very challenging to develop new technologies. A lot of, I've been around working and making new technologies for 16, 17 years, and I've seen a lot of companies go through a lot of money and lose it. I've seen companies make all these announcements, they'll go public, and then their plant they built, their machines they built don't work. So we want to make sure we provide accurate technical information so that when they do get built, they'll work and understand the key scientific technical issues, how to deal with them. 
Wishing you all the best, George. Thank you so much for coming on Mindful Businesses. Hey, Vidya, it was a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We would love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pastrita. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.